and welcome to Landscape Photography World, the podcast for everyone passionate about landscape photography. I'm Grant Swinburne and I'll be your host on the show talking to landscape photographers about their motivations, likes and dislikes. This podcast is sponsored by Syncback Pro, the professional photographer's tool to keep your images safe. How safe are your photographs? Or to put it this way, how would you feel if you permanently lost some or even all of them? The fact is, there are very real risks in storing your digital images on a hard drive, even if they're backed up to an external device. There's ransomware, hardware failure, file corruption, virus infection, and even accidental deletion or destruction. Syncback Pro makes this problem go away permanently. Syncback Pro is the professional photographer's tool to back up photographs, images, documents, and data files. Once set up, it keeps your files safe, quietly and reliably in the background. So if problems occur or disaster strikes, you'll have nothing to worry about. Your photographs will be safe. Which is why it's also the backup solution that I use myself for my own photographs. Take advantage of an exclusive 25% discount today by going to www.backup.sg. The software will never expire, meaning your photographs are safe forever. That's www.backup.sg. Give your photographs the protection they deserve. And now, on with the show. Former radio presenter and ABC executive, Tim Ritchie found a new career as a photographer almost by accident. Seeking to improve his health and manage his diabetes, Ritchie learned how to ride a bike with his daughter's help. Cycling up Sydney's hills proved more beneficial than his previous exercise routine and he began capturing the beauty he encountered around Sydney in the early hours with a camera. Leaving his executive position, Richie rediscovered his creative side through photography and started cycling specifically for capturing photos. Sharing his work on social media gained positive attention and he aspires to be recognised as Sydney's photographer of emptiness. Richie's photography has become his primary vocation, exhibiting in shows such as the Venice Biennial, and he continues to explore Sydney's tranquil moments before the city awakens each morning, driven by a passion for both health and creativity. We talk about his career in radio and as a club DJ, his passion for dew and raindrops, and how photography has filled the creative void in his life, along with much more. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey Tim, welcome to Landscape Photography World. How are you going? Doing really well. Today, or well, the last week or so, I had a head cold that my wife bequeathed me, and it's been a really boring one. It's nothing like COVID. I just cough and cough and cough, and then there's mucus, but you don't need to know all about that. All right, fair enough. We'll try and avoid the mucus and talk more about photography. Why don't you talk a little bit about yourself and your radio career, because a lot of people will know you from that aspect of your life and then we can talk a little bit about how you got into photography and what place that holds in your life now okay so i used to listen to double j when i was a lad that's the abc's youth station and there was one particular announcer who i really liked and his name was russell guy and he was doing breakfast and then he went away and so i listened to this other guy for a week and i didn't know but i was already very good at listening as a skill like even though we're here to talk about vision i was good at li- and still am good at listening and i could pick apart his performance and I, so I was running early for my bus i turned to a schoolboy turned off the radio and rang in because i knew the number because i used to ring up to win records right. and 
critiqued him, and I didn't know, but he put me live to air. And the, he said, anything else after I'd given several critiques of him and his performance? And I said, oh, when's Russell coming back? Because he's much better than you. And he said, if you think it's that easy, you can come in tomorrow morning and do the breakfast show. And so the next morning, Mercedes pulled up outside my house at 5 o'clock and took me wow. in. And in my school uniform, and I did the breakfast show before going off to school. And that's how I started, and I got a taste for it. And then, long story short, I worked my way through university doing Midnight to Dawns on Double J and then Triple J, and then I finished my degree, and rather than head down, it's in economics, rather than head down becoming working in Treasury or the Reserve Bank, I decided that music and radio was much better, and so I chased that, and eventually that all fell into place. Fantastic. It's a lot more fun, I think, playing with radio than playing with numbers. Yeah, I was good at numbers. Maybe less lucrative. (laughs) Yes. I was good with numbers, but I wasn't good with working in the abstract. I like things that are more real world. Sure. Sure. Fantastic. When did photography start for you and what was it about photography that made you start that passion that's still alive today? It started in the days of analogue and while I was working at Double J, I'd moved out of home and it was a very good setup. My girlfriend paid the rent, I did the cooking and the cleaning mm-hmm. and well, the university student had no money and I had a camera and I started to take photos. We lived in Kirribilli, so I take photos of the bridge and things like that. Nice. And I especially liked nighttime photography, longer exposure. And the and that was fun and I really enjoyed it. My career started to blossom and the cost of that passion is quite expensive. The cost yeah, of building and cost of yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I stopped taking photos and then worked at Double J, Triple J, and I worked at Radio National for nearly a quarter of a century. Wow. And then in then towards the end of my Radio National days, well, the last five or six years there, I had become a senior manager, like a senior executive, and it wasn't creative. It's all about money and people. It's not about ideas. And yeah. I yeah. didn't know. Once you're in that, on that path to uh, improvement, supposedly, improving your position in our A company, you tend to get further away from the product you're making and yeah, more the actual, into the, Yeah, the actual thing that you're all about, your organisation actually does. And, and so I was a bit frustrated. I didn't know how frustrated I was at that. At the same time, this is when I'm about 50. At the same time, I had diabetes and I was working, doing my 10,000 steps a day and it wasn't getting the results that the doctor wanted. And so I thought, look, maybe I'll try cycling. Now, as a kid, I'd never ridden a bike. Because I was a very insular kid. I used to read books and the music. And so my daughter, who we'd bought a bike for, I said, can you teach me how to ride? And she said, oh, sure. And she was, so that's, she was about 10. And so then, and so we'd get, I have a back lane out the back. It wouldn't be out the front, it'd be a front lane. There's a back lane out there. And I would, I got a secondhand bike and said, okay, what do I do? And she said, you just go. And I said, no, I need more instructions. And she said, no, you just go. And she got bored within three minutes. But being fat and 50, you're quite high off the ground to take your feet off the ground on yep. a thing that you're not used to being on. Every gravity is not very low. <laughs> no. And so I just practiced pushing off and pedaling a bit. I couldn't turn around in the lane. I had to get off the bike and put it around. But I went up and down, up and down. And then I thought, all right, I'm going to start riding. And because Sydney's fairly hilly, and that's where I'm based in Sydney, and the 
hills, as, as it turns out, were very good for diabetes because you have to push really hard. It's that thing about, it's actually not about long, medium exercise, it's about short bursts of in, intense exercise. Yeah. So yeah. I started to ride and I'd take my mobile phone with me and I would take shots just to, I don't know why, just maybe to have a break in between. I can't even remember why I did it. And the result on phones back then, so this is 13 years ago, yeah, 13 years ago, shots back then on phones were low light, were pretty shitty. And yep. so I then started to post them on various social media and it ended up being a way of making me go out because it's either it could be cold or I'm tired. And, but the, I built up in my own mind an expectation that people thought I was going to post that day. So that helped yeah. me get on the bike and get out there. And we'll go back to diabetes. It worked. It helped me a great deal with my diabetic numbers. So that was all good. And eventually I went from a mobile phone to a shitty camera to an OK camera to a good camera. And with a good camera, I got a tripod. If you've seen my work, it's obvious that I've got a tripod because it can be very dark. Yeah. And it took me back. I'm also going to have to say, while I was on air on Triple J, I was also working in nightclubs. So I'd finish on air at 10 and start in nightclubs at 11. Yep. And back in those days, they used to finish at 3 a.m. So mm-hmm. I finished at 3. Everyone else had to rush home because they would get up the next day to work. I yeah, that, that was, I was me. Working. <laughs> I was working an evening shift, so I could sleep a fair bit. So I would wander around the city by myself, wander down to Mrs. McCoy's chair, whatever, and just be by myself in a huge city. So I found that by cycling, and I couldn't cycle at night because I was too tired after what was a fairly intense job. So I found it easier. I could get up in the morning and cycle. And then I built up my kit over time to have the tripod, have different lenses. And I now have maybe about 10 lenses and I travel with four at any given time in my little pack that goes on my bike. And I found that thing in my youth that I had, which was being by myself in the city I love and there's no one else there. It's So I get to own Sydney and it's really special. And I love older things as well. And I take photos of modern buildings a a bit, but finding city alleyways that could be from the 1930s or from yesterday, things like that. And you also, the harbour is a fantastic backdrop for dawn. I don't actually like sunrise light. I find it too much and all the colours gone. So I like from before dawn to just before sunrise is my time. And that's the time. And you can, there's much more colour at that time and with post-production you can make things even more appealing and people think post-production some people think it's cheating but what i found it does it allows me to see or what i see i can then replicate on the screen as i'm editing because yep. no camera is good enough as a human eye is to capture the complexity of a scene absolutely so yeah. the skill is in post making it be real yeah i think I think you do a great job. And I think it's also that, I guess, the some of the unique subject matter, like the laneways, it's not a popular thing. I'm more of a seascape sort of person, so I'm usually at a beach somewhere. I was actually in the city today, this morning, for sunrise, which was quite quite a cracker, actually. It was a pretty good one. But I think it's some of those things that make your work quite interesting to to look at each day you're not sure what you're going to get out of tim's feed and sometimes it's a, a laneway sometimes it's a beautiful sunrise over black bottle bay or something like that 
And so for me, it's it's always interesting to see what you're posting because it is that little bit different. It's not necessarily the grand landscapes that a lot of landscape photographers go for. It's more that urban grittier view that that is something that I quite like. It's quite refreshing, I think. Some people don't like it. Like I post on one Facebook site that I can't remember the name of it, something like Australia is awesome or something like that. Oh, yeah, and, I know the one. <laughs> and the people say, what's awesome about that laneway? And I go, <laughs> I, I, I try not to, I don't, I try not to get rude because rude, it's sure. such an awful, social media is such an awful place for rude people because you don't need to encourage them at all. Yeah, and it's supposed to not be rude. But I just went, and I, 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 he said it in such ways that it could have been either sort of compliment or sort of facetious. And I think it was facetious, but I answered him as though it was a compliment and he never replied back. So clearly it was facetious. I talked about the rule of thirds and the starburst and all this stuff and he just didn't come back. So that was fine. But so when I start each day, because I naturally wake really early, I don't set an alarm. So I I wake between 3.30 and 4, that's around then, and I have all my clothes set up so I don't disturb my wife and child. And I just get out and I don't know where I'm going until I put the bike on the footpath out the front and go left or right and then just go. And as the light is starts to appear, because cycling is actually a very fast way to get about Sydney at that time of day because traffic's Definitely, yeah, no traffic. Yeah. And the only traffic that's there is usually professional drivers doing delivery of food or whatever. Yeah. So, and also because I'm old, I don't have to look cool. I don't mind having lights on my bike and wearing a coloured vest. I, you know, that's I'm fine with that. But you, I just keep an eye going. I'm going, and I've got a, an app that says where the sun will rise. And so I look at it and go, okay, with these clouds that I'm starting to see in the dark, and that's where the sun's going to come up, where can I go? Because I also know, because I'm out every day, unless it's a really miserable day, I know where, because the sun clearly moves throughout the course of the seasons, and yeah. I know both what time it'll be up and where it'll come up and how that will line up with a particular shot. There's some great summer shots I can get from where Barangaroo Reserve is of the, of the first light coming up under the Harbour Bridge. And mm-hmm. I'd know not to go there in winter because in winter it's going to be down south and I'm yeah, not going to get south, there. Yeah, it's around the corner. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just knowing the city. And a lot of what I do is quite repetitious because I do visit the same sites. Every time I take a photo, for me, it's about doing the best I can. And every time I take a photo, it's a bit better than previous photo that I took from that spot. Now, it may look the same to people who have a look at it, but for me, it's different. And I constantly like the challenge of thinking about how I can, because I'm completely self-taught, watched a few YouTube videos to work out settings and things, but because mm-hmm. I take bracketed photos and then yep. uh, meld them together. Blend to them make together, yeah. And so I didn't know how to do that because I'm also hopeless at reading manuals. I need to watch someone doing it on the screen. Manual just doesn't work for me. And so self-taught, the experience of being the first person, me, I'm the first time I'm me in that situation each time I'm in it because I've learned yep. a little bit more and can appreciate this. And I'll think back to a photo I took of it and what wasn't perfect about it. And I go, okay, I can remember that I needed to be something, to do something as a camera or something with me or be in a lower position on the tripod and all those things. And it's just fun. So it's easy for me to, it's hard to get out of bed, but it's easy once I'm on the road because yeah, I'm cycling, yeah. I'm looking about going, what can I see? What can I see? And because my career had previously been all about listening and my ear, I didn't nourish 
the visual aspect because there wasn't one in what I did. And I found out that without sounding like an egotist, I'd have an eye to be able to spot interesting things. Mm. I was this morning, I was on the Carl Expressway walkway thing. Yep. And the, I got out my camera and I was taking some shots of the, you know, the harbour and that was all nice. And then I realised, oh, I've got my macro lens with me. And so I looked at some of the metal railings and I thought, okay. And then I got some macro shots of the metal railings. And then when I was playing with them in post, the outcome is fantastic. It's, I over-accentuated everything just to, because it's sure, meant sure. to look like an abstract. But so I really went for it. And I, because I'm such an anal person, I rate every photo that I okay. And one is I may not put it on social media. Two is it's good enough if it's a dry day. Three is that's worth posting. And four and five are great shots. And I got some fours this morning, so that was good. Nice. (laughs) That's good. I was going to talk a little bit about the, or ask you to talk a little bit about your abstract work. One of the things I've noticed occasionally, particularly when it rains, is your focus on car windows or car mirrors and or various parts of cars that have raindrops on them. What's that about? Where did that where did that passion come from? And is that just about trying to do something artistic and different? Or well, or it has actually has an origin. I was cycling out to go along. No, I was coming back from going along the along Botany Bay, and mm-hmm. it, the sun was just coming up, and there was some play equipment that had been put in a park that I cycled past. And it was brand new play equipment and it was all ultra vivid colours. And so I went over, I looked at it and there was dew on it. And so I just didn't have my macro with me. I just got close. with uh, Not that it matters what it was, but it's uh, my camera is a two-thirds sensor. So it was a 23-millimeter lens. Yep. So it made a 35. And took some shots of it and then came back home and looked at them in the computer. I'm going, well, that's okay, but it's a bit boring. And I went... What if I just turn it up and turn it up a lot? So it's not meant to look like what I saw. It's meant to look like a painting or something. Sure. And that, that really works because these things are so new, the colours are so bright. And that made me it put then dew in my background, in my mind of things to keep an eye on. And that dew only happens certain times of the year as well. Now it's oh, good yeah. for dew. And so when I'm cycling around, if I see a car with a streetlight in the right spot, because each bubble of either water from rain or water from dew can create light sparkles and things. When you get close enough with a macro and you put the focus on one part and the other sides are both out of focus, it creates rainbows and things. And so it is definitely an art kind of like I'm trying to create art. I'm not trying to create a landscape. It's a thing to... Um, challenge my mind to be playful. A lot of people don't get it. A lot of people love it. It's good, quite polarizing. And polarizing can be good though, because making people feel something or think something with art, I think, is one of the most important things about art. Well, I go and see things like Francis Bacon. Is, I love seeing his work, and a lot of people just think he can't paint and it's morbid, but <laughs> I see great things in it. You can see one painting there yep and i'll just pick this up and turn around there's another one there so cool. when i was a dj club dj you used to get paid cash and it's now past the seven years so i can't get caught by saying this and so rather than you can't put it in the bank particularly because you get caught there and people spend it on shoes girls or drugs i bought art 
Nice. <laughs> I have asked about my house because that's where the DJ money went. But back to, yes, and I see my photography as probably three main things. One is a landscape that is beautiful. One is laneways that is chronicling Sydney's history. Mm-hmm. And one is this abstract thing that is me just being playful. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I think that's uh, it's a nice way of categorising what you do. It's and it's a really good summation. How much do you think your days of or nights of working in the music industry have shaped how you perceive art? And you said you were good at listening, and you didn't do a lot with your visual perceptions at that time. But now that's changed. What did you bring out of that music industry into into your photography? Strangely enough, and I think Double J and early Triple J speak to this quite vividly, that we were about experimentation and innovation. And the things we were allowed to do, so there's very little telling us what to do, Practically none at the beginning, none, none. Double and, day, definitely not. <laughs> yeah. And so I would, then I, that went across into my club work where the most of the DJs just wanted to play hits because they kept people dancing on the dance floor. Sure. And sure. because I'm not a stupid person, I don't think, I realised pretty quickly that it wasn't just about keeping the punters happy, it's about keeping the management happy and keeping mm. the management happy is A, having lots of people come in and B, sending them to the bar every now and then. So yeah. I would drop down into playing some reggae and things and in clubs would never hear that stuff. And half the dance floor might leave, but guess where they went? They went to the bar. And yeah. so the management always liked that. And what it allowed me to do was express myself musically, which is about diversity, while other people, and that, well, what stopped me being a DJ was techno because it isn't about diversity. And it is just about that constant beat in that 130 beats per minute kind of thing. And I'm fine with people who love that's absolutely fine, but I don't love it. And it also coincided with me getting married and I'd had enough of staying up because in the (laughs) 80s, you could work six or seven nights a week in clubs. So I've got five nights on air and then six or seven in nightclubs. A, you're not going to have a very successful marriage unless the person doesn't want you around. But I was... Or they come right. to the club. <laughs> yeah. Well, she used to be come to the clubs when they were closing to help me get stuff into the car or the taxi. Mm-hmm. But I was quite over that. And I think even though I have some friends, DJs, who still DJ, I, for me it was I'd had my turn, I had my fun, I made some money. And mm-hmm. to keep playing records to people who think they know what is good music when actually all they want to hear is what they already know wears thin after a while. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But that doesn't answer the visual question. So I, but what does was watching people leave the dance floor to go and get drinks. So I was always been an observant person, but most of that observation was done with my ears in Radio Land. But yeah. then as I left that and went into management, you had to observe people and you had to see what motivated them and what pissed them off because the idea that a manager is superior for me, it's not what a manager is about. A good manager is someone who can manage the resources to get about the best result, which is, in the case of people making radio programs, quality programs with great ideas, especially at Radio National, they tend to be quirky kind of people who do that work. So you've got to find ways of not condescending and 
to them, but inspiring them by recognising their wealth and their worth to their project. Mm. And so that kind of looking for clues then has translated into my photography where I'm constantly looking for clues. If I thought, all right, today I'm going to go to Clavelli Beach and I'm going to go on the headland and I'm going to take a photo of the clouds just before sunrise. Yep. It could be the most boring just before sunrise cloudy day. Mm. So I never make my mind up. I'm always just constantly looking about going, what can I take from this? Where will it head me? And, for example, when it's been rainy and I've heard the rain overnight, I'm going, I'm not getting up. And then I roll over and it's 4.30, say in summer when the sun comes up at 6.30, say the the changes over time and daylight saving and all that. I'll go, all right, I don't have time to cycle there. I'll jump in the car and I'll go somewhere. And inevitably I don't have as much fun because I've had that forced on me by a decision I made without the input of seeing what's going on. Yeah, right. Even though I get a good shot, I'm not that excited by it because it wasn't that happenstance. And happenstance is a great thing, like a feeling of success for me. Yeah, okay. I usually ask my guests what does success look like in your photography and it doesn't have to be commercial success or fame or anything like that. What does it mean to you to be successful in your photography? I make very, very little money out of it. I don't do it for money. I like to be appreciated as a human being. Like I prefer people to say, that's good and that stinks. I do like uh, compliments and likes and things like that. It makes me feel as though I've succeeded in taking something that someone else appreciates. Sure. But that's one measure. So it's the, the public's view of the work. And the other is just, have I had a good time in my inputs to get that output? which is why I would be very poor as a commercial photographer because it's for me it's not about just the output. It's not about the fun you have putting in. Absolutely, absolutely. One of the things you mention quite often in your captions is the urban renewal that's going on and that focus on some of those older parts of Sydney that are now being, one of a better term, destroyed, wiped out, whatever, <laughs> How much do you see photography as being a tool to document that change and the ability to promote conservation efforts? Have you thought about it in that way? Have you thought about trying to do something along those lines? Absolutely. I took a lot of photographs of the Sirius building before it had been emptied when there was still a chance we could keep it as social housing. Yeah. And it's a fantastic building to take photos of as well. They're going to cough. And so, it, well, it didn't make a difference. I connected with a bunch of people through my photos who found those photos, who just put a, a tag, save our series. And sure. so conservators, unionists, all people who care about the past and what I mean, the serious building was a way of keeping community housing in the rocks after they wanted to or did succeed in getting rid of a lot of community housing, build them something they could be proud of and have as unique. And so the idea of getting rid of it was the antithesis of what should have been there. And now they're stuck with this thing that has apartments that are too small for rich people but too expensive for poor people, so I don't know what's going to happen with it (laughs) as an example. But because a lot of the – I did a – thing, I think it was last year, for Sydney University where they wanted uh, a lot of urban landscapes. And so there was their 
they have an annual something of urbanism. I can't remember the name of the project. And so I took, I had, I just looked at my catalogue and I sent them photos of my catalogue and said, okay, that's great and we love that, but we've now been thinking about it that a lot of what you say in your tags is what, where is part of the value is as well. And yeah. so can you make reels and talk about, there were three topics that I talked about. I can't remember what they were. So I made reels and talked about issues with, as someone who has no vested interest beyond a love of Sydney, yeah. what individuals can do and say and think. And that has attracted to me, especially on Twitter, a lot of people who care about the urban environment and social housing and architects generally. And so that is another form of recognition that the work is seen as something that can make a difference, even if it's only in chronicling what's there and what. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like my photos of Walsh Bay isn't going to decide whether or not those peers continue. The, the economy and people making money is what's going to happen there. No matter what I wrote about Barangaroo, didn't stop all the towers going out. No. But I noted it and I showed it being built and I talk about it when I, sh- I take a nice shot and there's that thing there and I always pass a comment and 99% of the time I get, you know, if people comment on it, they'll say they agree. And yeah. Yeah. while I don't think I've swayed those people, it's a community that has come that I'm now part of and that's a nice thing. I did take a shot of down in Jones Bay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Looking out from the last, I can't remember what the wharf number is, but the last one where there's the peninsula that leads, it's called Darling Island, even though it's a peninsula now. Yeah. And an old, what was a storehouse thing, it's been converted into flats, very, very expensive flats. Yeah. I made a comment about it would have been great to keep it in public hands, make it a museum or an art gallery or something. And quite a few entrepreneurial types thought that that was a very naive way of okay. preserving things. The way to preserve it is to make it valuable, not to make it valueless, as though museums and art galleries... Don't have any value. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I tried to engage, but it was clear I wasn't going to get very far, so I just stopped. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also I find... have no hesitation in blocking people. If people are <laughs> rude or stupid, I just, I don't, I just block and then I never have to deal with them again. Yeah, good on you. I'm exactly the same. I had somebody that thought it was okay to repost, or not just repost one of those shots, but actually edit it first and then repost the edit. And it was kind of like, politely asked them, could you take that down, please? And then they came back and said, I was being very precious. Well, okay, call me precious. I don't care, but it's my precious shot. I don't, good. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't want you editing my stuff because it was a shitty edit. Yeah, those plays. <laughs> Some and people it, turn things that I've done into black and white and say, I think it looks better in black and white. And I just leave that going. Yeah, yeah. all you need to do is hit a button. <laughs> Change it from colour to black and white. Right. <laughs> the, the other thing that fascinates me, though, is a lot of people don't recognise that chronicling of change and chronic, chronicling of the time period that they're currently in, taking those. You see those street shots from the 1940s and 50s and even further back when you go back into the early days of photography. And it's interesting. I see the city council or the state government or whatever using those, walking along there past the bottom of the Harbour Bridge this morning. And there's a big hoarding with sort of three and a half, four foot high 
shots dating back to the 1850s or 60s all the way through to the 1950s of that surrounding area, the Walsh Bay, Jones Bay, the Rocks area. And it's interesting that they've got that sort of displayed, but a lot of people don't put a lot of value on looking at where we are now because in 20, 30, 40 years, that is going to be seen as a historical document. And for me, one of those important things that art can do and photography can do is to chronicle what we're, how we're living now for people in the future. Do that, absolutely. The only problem is because of digital assets, there are now so many more of them. And it was like the guy who, and no doubt it was a guy, who took a photo in 1850 had probably 100 shots that were in his catalogue of things that were really important. I've got tens of thousands of shots. That's right. Yeah, Yeah, you can over-chronicle, I guess. That's the hard drive, that one there, because it's a lot of portable hard drive uh, to get packed up. So that's the one that's got all the shots. But I did at one stage contact the city, and I because I live in the footprint of the council in the city of Sydney, and I said, look, I take lots of photographs. I don't need to... I don't know, I'm happy to share them. A credit would be great, but you don't have to pay me for them. And they put me in touch with the head photographer. And of course, he said, because he didn't want to lose any of his work, no, we're right. Thank you very much. <laughs> Which I, we're all I, good. <laughs> I understood where it's coming from because he doesn't lose his job. But I had this thing that in 50 years' time, if, it's, if no one looks after it, it's gone. And exactly. it's something that, yeah. that says a lot. Because the social media platforms, that we're using today may go the way of MySpace and everything else that's gone before Yeah, within 10, 15 years, if we're lucky or if they're lucky. <laughs> and so, yeah, that, that online storage, I don't think is necessarily for, in terms of social media, necessarily got the legs that you need for some of those historical documents. And as you say, being digital, it's really hard to make sure that they get kept and maintained in a way that they can be used. Yes. And my shots aren't compressed. Well, the ones that are online are. Sometimes I think a a beautiful sunrise or before sun, a beautiful dawn, and I've captured this fantastic change of the hues of colour. And Mm. there's all these bands of different colour comes into it because they've compressed it. Yeah, because of compression. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which makes my shot look a bit cheesy. But whenever people, because I do sell a few to directly to people that are interested, and they say, oh, I really like that shot. And I said, what you'd be getting would be a high-res version of that. Yeah. It'd be much, much, much better than that. And if it's printed on gloss paper, it will really pop compared to that. Yeah, yeah. nice. You mentioned diversity. How do you think those cultural and social perspectives influence the way we perceive and take photos of landscapes. And I guess one of the questions I've got is how do we foster greater diverse diversity and inclusion in the field? Because there's a lot of middle-aged men <laughs> and younger as well. I don't see as many middle-aged women, and I'm not saying there aren't any, but I just don't see as many, and I don't see as many younger women coming into it. How do you think that as photographers we can help foster that? From the taking of photos side, not yeah, the subject. Yeah. Yeah, I'm out as I'm out really early. 
I see very few women out. They're mostly men, and it's only when the sun starts to come up that they're out for exercise. And so it's a safety issue. That's uh, yeah. and that's clearly it. And I've had a few people ask me to can I can they come with me and watch me and learn? And some of them have been women. And I've only ever said yes once because she was someone who I vaguely know, and she's a musician, and she wanted to take photos to go with pieces of music. And uh, so she showed me things that I'd taken photos of, and she said, "Can you take me on a tour and do that?" And of course. Dad didn't take money for it. And so if your nature is artistic enough, you'll push through, but it is hard, the safety thing at my time. I don't know that there's any difference in the chromosomes between a man and a woman that makes why men take want to take photos more than women. I think possibly things like most of the housework is done by women and it, it takes up time. Like my, yeah. I don't work anymore. My wife does. I do the... Uh, you probably heard that ping then, did you? Yep. Yep. I was, uh, my wife works and I don't. So she still does all the cooking because she doesn't like my cooking. But I do the cleaning of dishes and clothes, but I find housework really boring. So she ends up doing a fair bit of that as well. So she yeah. has less free time than me by a long shot. So to go back to the question, I think it is this about awful for men. I think we need to stop being selfish and create space for people to foster their interests. When women write to me and ask me, how did I do something? And some of the sites, I publish a little tile that says the ISO and the Glen. And people often ask, and it's more women than men ask questions about it. I think men tend to be more arrogant and they can't be told. But women ask, why F-16? And they say, because it gives you a starburst with this particular lens. And so if you do a longer exposure to F-16, and it's dark enough, yep. it'll get You'll that get thing. That. Yeah. And so they're more inquisitive. So it should be more equity in it. We just, as men, need to be more generous, both in allowing the women around us more mm. time to do creative things. And as someone who has some knowledge, don't make it a power thing, make it a sharing thing. I learned a long time ago, my father taught me this. He said, when you give something, you give it. You don't... Yep have strings attached to say, I've done this, you don't have to be really grateful or tip your hat or whatever. Yeah, it's sure. about true generosity. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great attitude towards it. In terms of where you shoot, obviously it's around Sydney. Have you got any, you mentioned there's a few places that you keep going back to. Have you got any favourites and what is it about that spot that keeps dragging you back there? Not sadly, but both the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House are really good subjects. Oh, and yeah. they done to death. I, I do them all the time. <laughs> yeah. And so try to find angles on them. And I, because I was, before I got up on the Carlos Expressway this morning, I was down around the Opera House and I managed to get a couple of things that I haven't seen before. So you'll probably see them over time. But it's also the luck of things like crepuscular way, uh, rays. So yeah. the Man of War steps. So the Opera House is right beside you, but mm-hmm. you take a shot. Of looking up the harbour, and on the, I don't know what it does in the atmosphere to make it, but sometimes there's just this bright orange shard just shooting through. Yeah. Uh, so that's a good spot for that, the Man of War steps. I really like that. To take photos of the city, I like cycling around past Mrs. Macquarie's chair down around to Camp Cove or Farm Cove. I can't remember. The one next to Botanical Gardens. And 
the city spends a lot of money on lights when they don't need to. So okay. at 4.30, it looks fantastic. It's really nice. What they don't spend money on is the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House. So they're always quite dimly lit and get ways around that. So that's a good spot. Lavender Bay, I really like. Yeah, uh, it's more of an effort to get there. Yeah. And Blues Point is also a good spot. And one that I wouldn't normally share, but you seem like such a nice fellow, at Berries Bay, there's a Berries Bay lookout that is the best views of Sydney at dawn. Yeah. And, uh, and you, and even if you, like sometimes I'm going, I'm so tired, I can't get there. I'll catch the train to Waverton and then cycle from there. <laughs> uh, but that's a good spot. But I've seen quite a, over the maybe 10 times I've gone there, maybe 10 other photographers during that time. I know we don't see other photographers. So that must be a spot that is known as you can get some really good shots. Yeah, I've, I've shot from there myself. Done it a couple of times. Very occasionally see other photographers there, but not very often. But but all the other spots I'm at, unless it's under, just past the Harbour Bridge, that view of the Opera House, going around under the Harbour Bridge, that's where I see a lot of photographers. Yeah. And the pier that runs next to the hotel at that spot, the Park Hyatt, uh, there's always a lot, especially on weekends. Yeah, and in yeah. winter, which is a good spot, in winter on the International Passenger Terminal Wharf, but in summer, there's a boat comes practically every day, and so it's locked off. Yeah, right. Accessing it, and I like Bronte Beach is great, and the pool, the, the rock pool oh, there. Bronte, is yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, and I was last week. I did the big cycle all the way down to Malabar, and got okay. some nice shots from there as well. So ocean pools, I really like. Yeah, yeah, they're one of my favourite subjects as well. I'm very often found around the edges of a pool somewhere on the coast. I think when, because there are some expats who follow me because it makes them they like to remember. Yeah, that. yeah. A lot, all of them, not all of them, a lot of them comment about the East Coast ocean pools, that they, there's nothing like that anywhere else in the world. It's yeah, but very, very rare. There's a couple, I think, Somewhere in Portugal or Spain, one of those, there's a couple of places there that have something similar. They're not quite the same, but, yeah, there's very few that have certainly nowhere near as as many as Sydney. I think there's about 35 of them from memory. Just on the, one on the down the south coast where you have to go down the side of a hill to get to it. Yeah. I think it's called Blue Pool. I can't remember, yeah. I can't remember the... Town that it's down at Bermagiri, yeah, yeah, and there's some so to get some great shots just looking down into the pool, absolutely, absolutely. What's your most memorable photography experience? It is one that people have chastened me for. So, I was on the piece of grass that has there's the museum, so the art gallery, not the art gallery, Mitchell Library, and then there's a road of traffic going into the city, and there's an island, and then a road of traffic going out of the city. I'm on the island, and it's night. It's equivalent of night time. It's you know four thirty in the morning, middle cool. of winter, and I set up my zoom, and I can see that there's someone sleeping on the step, and okay, yep. and I you know, focus, take a photo, and get home, look at it, and fix it up to make it look what I was after. And I didn't look close enough, but you can if you zoom in because it was such. I did such good focus. You can see the person's face. Oh, now, okay, yep. To me, the photo spoke, and it was an Indigenous person, but the photo spoke really vividly of this person's life, having mm. to sleep on a step under bright lights 
and that's what their life is. Yep. But I got a lot of criticism because I showed the person's face. Yeah, now, yeah. I don't know that I could recognise that person, but you could see their face. So people said I invaded their privacy. Did I ask permission first? All the typical questions, not necessarily photographer questions, but people who care about other people's rights. And I took on board what they said because that was that, for them that, that was very important. Yeah. And I often, oh, I take homeless people occasionally, but I've most of the time they had their heads covered because of either mosquitoes in summer or cold in winter. Mm. And it was just, and I hadn't even processed that I should be looking for whether or not this person's face was yeah, there. Yeah. But it was such a great shot that I did publish it. And it is a great shot, but it evoked lots of negative feedback that I can understand why they did it. Yeah. I mean, it's totally okay if they, if you'd approach them and they said, yeah, sure, take the photo. But, yeah, but he was asleep as well. That's, that's it. You don't want to wake him. <laughs> hey. How about horror stories? Have you had any any dramas? Yeah, quite a few dramas. Drunk lads, because I I have a helmet on when I'm cycling, yeah. and I've had people whack me on the head and stuff like that. But the most the one that got the great was best result. I was taking a photo of the Reserve Bank, and okay. I had some money with security once at the Reserve Bank and other places. Security just don't know what the rules are, but anyway, taking a photo of Reserve Bank from public land. <laughs> From public land, and so it's a long exposure because it's not lit very well there. And it was doing my three bracket shots: the first one correct exposed, the second one overexposed, the third one underexposed. And yep. so we're into the second shot of the one that has the shutter open the longest. And yep. I can see, sadly, living in the city, I know what different kinds of addiction looks like. I know what heroin addiction looks like. I know what alcohol addiction looks like. And I know what methamphetamine addiction looks like. And it was heading towards me. Yep. And I'm going, man, just stagger and walk around me. And as he got close, he went, what's that? And put his head out to the camera. And so I grabbed it at the same time. We had a little hustle, little tussle, and then I shouted abuse and he went away. I went home and I developed, or well, not developed, I processed the thing and it was perfect. It got, everything was clear and then there's this wildness in the middle of it and it was a great shot. Wow. So adversity <laughs> came a piece of art. Nice, nice. What do you think the practice of photography has taught you about the world? Because of the kinds of things that are my subject matter, it's made me really cherish solitude and appreciate being by myself. I'm very comfortable by myself. It makes me appreciate history a lot more than I used to. And it makes me appreciate quietness as well because a lot of my career has been about noise and yep, yep. it's quiet when I'm out. So stillness, quietness, serenity, and looking for joy and I suppose the, the sort of touched on this that if you, I'll use an analogy, if you're going on a holiday to somewhere and you research it within an inch of its life because you can on the internet, yep. when you get there you may do all the things that you've researched and, you've, and you go, oh, I did all that. But if you go there with much less informed understanding of where you're going, you mm -hmm. will have more joy in the finding of things and that's what photography can do for me by not setting up the result before I go, but by being open to what can happen, then I get more fulfilled in life. Yeah, getting that spontaneity as opposed to what you predict is going to be there because you've over-researched it, yeah. And if people do that and they know that, that's fine. But for me, I Absolutely. like spontaneity. Yeah, no, that's nice. I guess are you straight home when you finish your ride 
hook up the camera to the computer, get the images down, and you're straight into editing, or are you yeah. want to um, leave them for a little bit? Because I take, I don't take as many photos as I used to because I found I was just overwhelmed and spending all the time editing. So yeah, I take yeah. between fifteen and thirty shots that I will edit, yeah. so, and, and all of them three photos each because of the thing. Yeah, yeah. And so I'll go. What do I think? So I'll suck them all into the machine as soon as I get home, and while I'm putting my bike away and the like, and then I'll look at them and I'll merge them into the three shots into the individuals. And that doesn't take very long. And I look at them and go, what was the one that made me feel that this typifies what I saw around this morning? And then I'll work on that one. And then as I'm having my breakfast, I post it to all the different sites. And then later in the day, I'll go back and finish the rest. But if I leave it for the next day, then there's a whole load of fresh ones. And so right. it's, <laughs> it's like, and I don't, I so do you're enjoy on the, the You're on the treadmill. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I do enjoy the editing, but the taking and not even, Actually, the taking is more exciting than the editing. The editing just makes me, as I said, realise what I saw, but sure. the taking of it is the exciting part. Yeah, yeah, getting out and being out there in, in the early morning light, yeah. And strange enough, people say, hey, winter, how do you do it? Winter's possibly the best time because you just got to wear the right oh, absolutely. clothes. absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you just and, dress appropriately and you're fine. <laughs> yeah, and, and there are even fewer people out then. So that's, that's great. That's exactly right, yeah. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I'm up and out early in the morning too is because there's nobody else around and you've got that you got that view mostly to yourself. To be honest, most of the people that I share it with are rock fishermen. And they like to be kept to themselves as well. I don't find Absolutely. them particularly Yeah, they, they tend to be fairly quiet and <laughs> not interested in interrupting anyone else either. Yeah. Where do you see photography going and what do you see as the biggest challenge for photography? I think with the improvement in quality of phone photography that it put it under a, quite a bit of threat that mm. it was just like when everyone became a DJ in the mid-90s, so mid-80s, late 80s, late 80s, when technology started yeah. in the late 80s, and then by the mid-90s, <laughs> then by the mid-90s, everyone was a DJ and it lowered both how much you got paid, it lowered the quality, lowered the standards, all of that. So yeah. I thought that's what phone photography would do, but it hasn't. Mm. Thankfully, phone photography has turned into Selfie City, which I have very little interest in. In fact, I, I took one photo when I was in Italy with my wife last year and she sort of insisted on it. And it hasn't, it's still in the camera of my phone. It hasn't left it yet because I wouldn't post a photo of she and I because it just looks showing off, Pontevecchio or whatever we were. Yeah. So I think it will continue to have the role of the phone, and that's just to churn and burn and sadly fill up data space. It probably makes it more difficult for the more quality photos to take. Be taken. Yeah. Yeah. I have the second version of this, the camera I use, is number two, back to number five, and I haven't looked to update because number two does me fine. It's, it delivers what I want from a camera. Yes, I could spend, instead of spending $2,000, I could spend $10,000 and it would probably yep. be a bit better, quite a bit yeah. better. And there's nothing wrong with that except it's not light enough to cycle with and yep. and I'm not necessarily as skilled as someone to be able to take advantage of it quite potentially as well. Yep. I think that the quality will still incrementally improve, but not dramatically. So I think it'll just be down to people wanting to take things because of their beautiful nature and 
people who get paid to take photos of clothes, food, and portrait work. So there will obviously still be a future in making money out of it for those people who do that area. And for people who do what you and I do, it, it is a hobby. So only the passionate people will be there. And I prefer to be in the pool of passionate people than in the pool of professional people if it means what is life about. Yeah, I can tell you that I was lucky. I was, I'm in one of those superannuation schemes because ABC was part of government. Yep. And so I get paid a pension. It's called a pension, but I get paid a fortnightly thing that's enough to live on. Can't travel the world on it, but I did work before that, so I've got some money there. Yeah. And I prefer to live my life a bit smaller than some people might but to enjoy it every day because there's no point slogging away. When I, some of the people who react to my photos and they say, how do you have time to do this? And I talk about it, the people mostly from overseas. And there was a fellow who has moved here from London. It's actually my pet because uh, I had my dog had something or that. And he said London was full of people who hate, hate their lives and hate what they're doing and do it for 12 hours a day. Yeah, I can't yeah. think of anything worse. I'm the same. Enjoying your life, like I have steak maybe once every two or three weeks, maybe, and oh. it makes me enjoy my steak when I have it. But I'm fine with having chicken curry. Yeah, that's the way. <laughs> um, are there any photographers out there that you think I should have a chat to on the podcast? I'm a bit bad in that I use social media like I used to be as a broadcaster, where I just send things out. <laughs> uh, so I don't actually follow many photographers sure. uh, if they follow me and i look at their work and i go there's something there i'll follow them back but i'll only if it comes up in my feed i don't go looking for them yeah uh, right. no i don't think i'm going to be any use to you that's okay no problem i've got a long oh, list anyway so <laughs> there's a famous photographer who who's not financially sponsored but put his name behind an exhibition they did the first solo exhibition and his name is peter elpis and he is a landscape photographer on a grand scale he does when the centre floods and all that kind of thing and he used to be a paparazzi kind of photographer in the 80s and so he's been clubs that I'd be at and he's a very reasonable human being he talks even more than I do (laughs) and he's on I think he's definitely on Facebook that's how I have most of my interactions with him so I would highly recommend you talk to him all right, I'll go looking for him then. I haven't seen his stuff on, I do know his name and I've seen some of his work, but I just haven't seen him around on social media. I haven't no, gone looking for him specifically though either. He lives in the Blue Mountains and he's been posting things like his renovation and such. He, but yeah, he has right. a book that I can't remember the name of it, which is Aerial Photography of Floods and they not disaster floods, floods yeah, that yeah. make the landscape come to life. And yeah. it was just mind-blowing. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you for that. I've got one more question for you, and for a lot of my listeners, it's one of the most important ones that we've got to get to the bottom of across the photography community. Do you like pineapple on pizza? No, definitely not, ever. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) My daughter does, but she's a blight on society. Uh, All right. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been wonderful getting to know you a little bit better. Where can people find your work? So on Twitter, I'm Tim Ritchie. On Facebook, I'm Tim Ritchie. On Instagram, I'm tim.ritchie.photography. I'm on Tumblr, Flickr, UPIC, the new one, Matador, whatever it's called. 
yep. the one that's going to take over after Astodon. Elon Musk. That's it. After Elon Musk buggers it, I find that people can't really find you there. I don't have many followers there, but so yeah. anywhere I'm on all over the place. Even LinkedIn, I find LinkedIn people and Twitter people who are LinkedIn people are supposed to be professionals, but they on some posts of other people they criticise and say, "What's that got to do with work?" And but the people who I've connected with who I used to work with or whatever, understand that creativity is work. It's just yeah. not to be fun, but it's right. as, as good as someone writing an important document about well, reconciliation or whatever. There's like art is important. Fair enough. All right. Well, thank you very much for talking to me, Tim. It's been wonderful. You're welcome, Grant. Thanks again for listening to Landscape Photography World. I hope you enjoyed the show and keep listening because I'll be joined by some great guests in upcoming episodes. You can find my work in this podcast at grantswinburnphotography.com. I'm also on Vero, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram and Facebook. I'm Grant Swinburne. Hope to see you out shooting soon.